Okay, so last week we did start this new sermon series, Putting Down the Gavel, and we, we talked about it. If you weren't here last week, you know, I say this uh, from time to time. There's, there's certain key sermons that you have to hear if you're going to really understand what gets built on top. Last week was one of those sermons, the introduction to this series you need. So if you haven't already, if you weren't here, you haven't listened to it online, you can go to iTunes, listen to the podcast, you can go to gracedwardy.com and listen to it online, download it, however you want to do it. But I encourage you to listen to that message so that I don't have to rehash everything that I talked about last week. So just by way of summary, um, we've been talking about the fact that uh, as you look at research, and even our own experience uh, confirms this, that uh, America, outside of Christianity, is not very impressed with Christianity. And, and it's getting worse all the time. And there's now countless studies by very respectable uh, research groups like uh, Barna and Pew Research and others that do uh, really top-notch research. And all the research is coming in and it's saying the same thing. But we didn't, even need the Pew, we didn't even need the polls. We didn't need the research because we can look at what's happening in our churches and realize and, and we can talk to the people that we work with in the workplace and realize, and we can have conversations over Thanksgiving dinner with family members and realize that more and more and more people who do not have a personal relationship with Jesus are getting turned off to Christianity at record rates. And so we talked about that last week. Uh, according to recent research, um, last year, for every person who became a Christian, there were four people who now call themselves former Christians. For every person who came to Christ, there were four people who left Christianity. And they, they now call themselves former Christians. Whatever else they may have become, the interesting uh, part of the research is they haven't become Muslim, and they haven't become Buddhist, and they haven't become Scientologists, and they haven't become, you know, any of these other things. What they have become is people who have written off religion. They're just, and they're not even agnostic, they're not even atheists, they've just decided they're not interested. So, so this is a problem. It's not just a problem that those people out there who don't understand us look at us and go, what is, what is up with these Christians? But there's a lot of people that are, that are sitting in churches, or let me put it this way. There are a lot of people who last year on a Sunday morning were sitting in a church building who this year on a Sunday morning will not darken the doors. And that's the reality. And so we kind of have a choice because uh, the, when you talk to these people, what you find out is that their problem is not with Jesus. Their problem is not with Jesus. Nobody I know is mad at Jesus. Nobody has a problem with the teachings of Jesus. Nobody has a problem with the attitude of Jesus or the things that Jesus did. Almost nobody's mad at Jesus. They're mad at us. It's the followers of Jesus that have left them disillusioned and confused. And part of me gets defensive and wants to fight about that and wants to say, hey, you don't know me. You, you know, you're misunderstanding what we stand for. You, you don't really understand where we're coming from. But all of that really doesn't matter because I have a choice at this point. I can either be defensive and fight with people or I can be like Jesus and reach out to people. And, and I, I choose the second one. I, I want to be like Jesus and reach out to people. 
So rather than getting defensive, we're going to start thinking about those people who were so precious to God that he sent his son to die for them. And we're going to figure out how we might be able to look more like Jesus because Jesus is so attractive that even when he spoke offensive truth to people, they still wanted to be around him. They still followed him. They still invited him to their parties. And how do we become more like that? We, we need to be recognizable as followers of Jesus. So uh, to help us to sort of lay the foundation of this whole idea, um, we're going to just do an audience participation kind of thing. So if, you're, if the person next to you is asleep, elbow them, wake them up, okay? Uh, this is an audience participation. What we're going to do is I'm going to play some audio clips one at a time. And as soon as you think you know who it is that is in the audio clip, just shout out the person's name, okay? And then, and then whoever gets the most right, Robert is going to take you to lunch after church, okay? That's your... All right? <laughs> so let's listen to the first clip. I'll be back. Right? Anybody not get that? That's Arnold Schwarzenegger, the former governor of California. Um, okay, let's listen to this one. I know you got it early, but I just like listening to it. I want to hear the rest. <laughs> Somebody said Elvis. Elvis who? Okay, just, I thought it might be with some other Elvis. I wasn't sure. All right, listen to this one. I know what you're thinking, punk. You're thinking, did he fire six shots or only five? Now, to tell you the truth, I forgot myself and all this excitement. But being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and will blow your head clean off, you've got to ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? <laughs> I know that one was way too long, but the last line. So who was that? Clint Eastwood, good. Um, let's see if you can get this one. Most of all, I want to thank God. Except for my kid being born. I just want to say one thing to my wife who's home. Yo, Adrian! I did it! Who's that? <laughs> Wait a minute. Half of you said Rocky and half of you said Sylvester Stallone. You realize that's not a real person, Rocky, right? You know that? All right. This, is, this last one's for the over 40 crowd. It's up to you, New York, New York, New York. Frank Sinatra. You guys, I wish you had my vantage point. It's so great. Everybody with gray hair is like... <laughs> <laughs> Okay.
Okay, so what's the point of all this? Um, the point is this. Every one of those voices is iconic. I didn't have to show you the clip. I didn't have to show you a picture, right? You just hear the voice. And in the case of some of those clips, it wasn't just the voice, it was the line, right? Like, you know what he's... When, when Arnold Schwarzenegger says, I'll be back, it's like, okay, everybody knows who that is, right? Um, here's the thing. Those guys are iconic. You know them the second you hear them, the second you see them, the second the film comes on, you recognize what that film is. Jesus is so much more iconic, so much more unique. He stands out so much more from the crowd than all of these people that we just recognize like this. People recognize Jesus when they see him. The question is, do people recognize Jesus when they see us? And that's what we're grappling with. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know, we have to put our defensiveness aside and ask this question. What does Jesus really look like? Why is he so attractive to people of every age, every generation, throughout all of time? Why are people so drawn to this person, Jesus? What is it about him that is so unique what is it that sets him apart so that his voice is different than every other voice? That his heart is different than every other heart? What is it that sets him apart? Because here's the thing. If you're a Christian, the definition of a Christian is a follower of Jesus. If we're going to follow him, we should become like him. And, and we're going to look at some passages. Take your Bibles, just go way to the back of your Bible. And we're going to start in 1 John, it's the end of the New Testament. If you get to Revelation, just go a couple of pages to the left from Revelation. And we're going to start out in 1 John, not the Gospel of John, but 1 John chapter 2. Okay? This is uh, John the Apostle. He's writing this letter to the church. And, and here's what he says about this. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him, speaking of Jesus, if we keep his commandments. So he's beginning already by, by uh, getting up in our face. And he says, if you say that you know him, we should be able to tell that you know him because you keep his commandments. Verse 4, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought also himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So he's telling us that Jesus has this unique walk. He has a unique way of carrying himself. He has a unique way of behaving. And that if we are his followers, we should walk like he walks. You should... You should be able to see a Christian just living their daily life in the workplace, in the community, in their family, and go, there's something about that person that reminds me so much of Jesus. And, and to go back, verse 4 is very convicting. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Guys, that's what the surveys are saying. 
People out there who are not Christians, who are not part of a church family, who are just observing from the distance and trying to gather from the people that they know who are Christians, whether or not Christianity is valid, they know the meaning of this verse having never read it. If you say you know him and you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. The world is pointing at the church and going, you're a liar, church. You tell us about the love of Jesus, but what we get from you is judgment. You tell us about the kindness of Jesus, but what we get from you is harshness. You tell us about how wonderful Jesus is, but there's nobody I know who's like that. There's a lot of Christians in this world. There's a lot of Christians in America. There's a lot of Christians in this room. You know how many people would say they've never met anyone who reminds them of Jesus? And he says, we're supposed to walk like him. Now, if you're in 1 John, just go a couple pages to the left to 1 Peter. And we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter's one of the other apostles, and he too is reading to, uh, writing to the church. And in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verse 19, it begins like this. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward a God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And it goes on to describe his sacrifice. So he says that Jesus called us and that part of that calling as a follower of Jesus involves suffering. Now, if you're a Christian and that's the first time you've heard that, I apologize because somebody didn't share the whole story with you. You heard about love and heaven and kindness and all that kind of stuff, but you didn't hear that following Jesus is a life of sacrifice. But the Bible's clear. He suffered, and he calls us to be willing to suffer on his behalf. And then he tells us, and to follow his example in our suffering, who while he was being reviled, did not revile in return. Who, who while was being attacked and yelled at and spat upon and whipped and beaten and all the things that he went through, did not return an eye for an eye but instead prayed for those who attacked him. And, and we think about this as Christians, and we consider for a second the fact that, that we live in a day and time when everyone has a megaphone, right? Everyone can get their voice heard these days. And it doesn't matter whether you have earned the right to speak, you can just speak. And there's not anybody editing what you're putting out there. And whether you're tweeting something or whether you're doing a blog or you have a podcast or you're just um, posting something on Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is that you're doing. Did I cover most of them? Those are the, those are the uncool ones that people my age are still on. There's other ones I don't even know about. But, but here's the deal. What I observe is that there's a lot of negativity coming toward the people of God in social media. And in traditional media, there's, there's a lot. That doesn't surprise me. It says here that we should expect that. 
What does surprise me is the response of Christians who so often respond in kind. That when we are attacked, we attack in response. That when we see a, uh, we read a blog that's, that's critical of Christians, that we um, go in on the comments and we comment even more critically of the person who has criticized us. That we tend to start fights on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and places like that. That we are, we are guilty of doing the opposite of what we're told to do here. Guys, it is okay if they throw stones at us. We're supposed to suffer like Jesus. It's not okay if we throw stones at them. And what they're saying is, we can't hear what you're saying because we're too busy ducking because you're throwing stones at us. Something to think about. Let's go to a more well-known passage in the book of Romans. Go to Romans chapter 8. It's right after Acts, you come to Romans, also in your New Testament. Romans chapter 8, very well-known passage of Scripture. Many of you know this verse that we're going to look at. Romans 8.28, one of the most popular verses among Christians that I know, says this, Romans 8.28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. And so many of us as Christians go, yes, amen, it's going to be okay. It's nice to know it's going to be okay, right? When things are tough, it's nice to know it's going to be okay. So let's just put you in this situation. You're working, you have a job, and your boss, for whatever reason, doesn't like you. Your boss is out to get you, always doing stuff to make your life more difficult, writing you up every time you do something wrong. And you're thinking, man, I'm going to end up getting fired. And then you think, oh, wait, it says in Romans 8.28 that God causes all things to work together for good. I'm not going to get fired. God's got my back. I'm probably going to get a promotion. That's what it says, Romans (laughs) 8.28. Well, if you think that's what it says, you don't understand what it means because we haven't read the rest of it. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 29 defines the good that verse 28 mentions. God causes all things to work together for good. What is the good? That you and I would be conformed to the image of Jesus. So when we take Romans 8, 28 and 29, what we can do is picture God, you know, taking the difficult things in our lives and the blessings in our lives and our strengths and our weaknesses and our problems and our blessings and pushing them all together and molding and shaping and he's shaping and he's molding and he's putting it in the fire to burn and he's bringing it out and he's, he's, he's polishing and sanding and doing all that. And what is it that he's making? He's making something that looks like Jesus. He's taking my life, mixing all of it together to make me look like Jesus. Pastor, what's your point? My point is this. We're supposed to look like Jesus. That's the point. That's what he's doing. And the passage goes all the way back to before the beginning of time when he predestined and foreknew people and all the way forward in time to our glorification. And it says the purpose of that whole salvation process is one thing, that you would become like Jesus. So, so if we're gonna, we can't figure out, hey, how do we get people to, to start um, uh, thinking that Christianity is good? How do we get people to stop being mad at Christians? Listen, how about if we forget that for a second and let's get our eyes focused on what the Bible calls us to get our eyes focused on and that is how can I look more like him? 
If we can get that going on, the right things are going to change. Now flip over, we'll do one more. Book of Philippians, chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. So, New Testament, little book. Philippians chapter 2, again, very well-known passage, beginning in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Of all the things that are true about God, maybe the thing that is most shocking to me is that the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who spoke the universe into existence, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who has all of the angels uh, worshiping at his feet, the one for whom the elders cast down their crowns along the glassy sea, the one who is above all, the King of kings, is humble. Isn't that shocking? It's astonishing to think that Jesus, the creator of everything, has at the core of his character humility. And we are told that this attitude of humility that he has, which by the way, the attitude leads to the action, right? So his attitude of humility led to him leaving the throne of heaven for the manger and ultimately the cross. And we are to have that same attitude which was in Christ. I could take you to passage after passage after passage. I'm hoping the point has been made by now. Here's the deal. If we are Christians, we are supposed to look like Jesus. That's the deal. When people see us, they should think of him. When they see us, they should think of him. Do any of you know someone who every time you see them, they remind you of somebody else? Like, that guy looks just like so-and-so. Man, I wish I had a dollar for every person who, like strangers on the street or in a mall or something, come up to me and they're like, are you George Clooney? (laughs) (laughs) Happens to me all the time. (laughs) Maybe not all the time. I did have somebody ask me if I was Uncle Fester from the Adams Family one time. (laughs) I don't know, but... The point is this, when somebody bumps into you, they should go, I think I just bumped into Jesus. That person, the way they acted, the way they behaved, the way they were kind and gracious and and truthful, just reminds me so much of Jesus. If you're a Christian, you may need to be reminded about his character. And if you're not a Christian and you're here just trying to figure this out and understand more about him and what his claims are, then then just allow me the privilege of introducing you to the real Jesus, not the one that you may have gotten confused because of the experiences that you've had. So we're going to try to do that. We're going to take a look at him. That's what these next few weeks are going to be about. Looking at Jesus, what is it about him that is so attractive? What is it about him that is so life-changing? And how can that be true of us as well? So now we're finally going to go to the Gospel of John. So uh, fourth book of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. We're going to be in John chapter 1. And it's very interesting if you read the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
All four of them um, take a slightly different approach, but John stands out from the other three dramatically. He does everything different. And one of the things he does different is when he introduces us to Jesus, he introduces us to him theologically. So our first picture of Jesus from John is a theological doctrinal statement. It's in John chapter 1. We're just going to begin right at the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So just to make sure we're all following along, let me be clear. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and he's using this, this uh, word, Word, to describe Jesus. And we know that because he goes on to say, he was with God in the beginning, and he was God. And the word was there in the Greek means was, is, and always will be. In the beginning, was, is, and always will be God, was the Word, and the Word was, is, and always will be with God, and the Word was, is, and always will be God. He's describing Jesus, and he's, he's laying the foundation for the doctrine of the Trinity here, and he's saying that somehow it's possible for Jesus to be both God and with God, who is a different person. And that's the doctrine of the Trinity, at least the beginning of it, and the Holy Spirit fills out the rest. So he's introducing us to this doctrinal statement that's just earth-shattering, that Jesus is not just one sent from God, but he is God. And then he goes on and tells us a little bit about John the Baptist in verses 6 through 8, and then we're going to pick it up in verse 11, speaking again of Jesus. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That, that everyone who receives him, he gives the right, not the opportunity, not the privilege, the right. They cannot be taken away from us. He gives us the right, those who receive him and believe on his name, to be called children of God. He adopts us and makes us by right his own children. And then he goes on in verse 14, and he says, And the word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. That's the song we opened with this morning, grace upon grace, right? For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten of God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. He has explained him, or some translations say he has revealed him. In other words, this God who was just someone off in the heavens that was so hard for us to relate to becomes man and reveals by becoming a man who God is in a way that we can grapple with and begin to understand. That's what he's done for us. Now, all of that is fabulous and important doctrine, and, and literally theologians write books that are eight inches thick on those verses alone, okay? It's heavy stuff, important stuff, foundational for our faith. But as we read this deep doctrine, you may have missed something in several of these verses that's just highlighted in verse 14. So let's go back to verse 14, and let's not miss this. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory 
Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. I want you to highlight that in your Bible, full of grace and truth. As, as we talk about this incredible doctrinal statement about Jesus, he goes, how can I sum it up? What can I say that will help you to see how he stands out from everyone? Here it is. He's full of grace and truth. Are you a grace person or a truth person? Yes. <laughs> see, see we, we all, if, if grace is over here on the spectrum and truth is over here, we all find ourselves somewhere on that spectrum, right? You might be a person who leans toward truth. And, and for you, it's about what does the Bible say and how do I keep the rules and what do I have to do the right thing and teach the right thing. And if I hear somebody teaching something that isn't actually in line with the Bible, I feel the responsibility to hunt them down and shoot them and drag them through the streets, that sort of thing. Those are truth people. And as we know, they're not just truth people in the world. There are truth churches, truth denominations, right? Whole groups of Christians who have said, look, we're about the truth. And, and those of you who are, who are not so excited or find the truth so important, you're, I'm not even sure you're one of us. And then over here, these are the grace people. Hi, grace people. Now, the grace people over here, these are the ones who are at the soup kitchens actually feeding the hungry. They're the ones who are... Who are who are more likely to just forgive and say, listen, I understand we all make mistakes. They're the people who want to make sure that people know how much they're loved. It was a grace person who wrote this statement. Nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care, right? And, and so which one is biblical? The answer is both. But, but in our imperfection, we tend to be in that pendulum one way or the other. And we tend to to either move toward grace or, or move toward truth. And that's one of the things that makes Jesus stand out so much. It doesn't say that Jesus is, um, you know, 50% grace and 50% truth. That's not what it says. It says he is full of grace, that's 100%, and full of truth, that's 100%. If, if truth was, was symbolized by the color red, and grace is symbolized by the color yellow, Jesus is orange through and through. He doesn't compromise grace for truth. He doesn't compromise truth for grace. And all of us do. <laughs> all of us have a tendency one way or the other. I, I think of my own story. When I got saved, I was 14 years old. Somebody explained to me about the grace of Jesus. By the time I was 14, my life was already a complete shambles. I was already guilty of a whole lot of things that get people thrown into jail or worse. My life was a mess. I was a heavy drinker. I was seriously violent. I was into all kinds of difficulty in my, in my late childhood. And someone came to me and told me about the grace of Jesus. And when I heard about the grace of Jesus and it penetrated my heart, I was, I was melted. I was, I was broken in two. I fell on my knees literally and cried out to Jesus and accepted his grace. And, and it was astonishing for me to think about how gracious his grace is because I understood that he loved church people. That made sense to me. They're nice. They follow the rules. They, they do what they're supposed to do. But I wasn't one of those people. And to think that his grace was enough for even me 
was shocking to me. It was astonishing. It was overwhelming. And, and because of that, if you had the um, un, unfortunate lot in life to be someone I knew at that time, you were going to hear the gospel. Man, I chased down everybody I could find. All my friends at school had to listen to what Jesus was doing in my life and talk about how he has grace to forgive you. Everybody got to hear about how wonderful he is and how forgiving he is and how kind he is. And I was dragging people to church left and right so they could hear about this. I was so blown away by grace. And when I first started teaching, and it was, I'd only been really a Christian for about a year when I first started standing up in front of people and, and holding the Bible in my hand and teaching. And and when I first started teaching, I didn't know what the Bible said. I had no idea. I just loved him. I loved him so much. And my messages were all about grace. And then I started getting more invitations to speak and given more opportunities. And I thought, I, I was going through the book of James, and I, I ran across this verse in James, and it says, um, Let not many of you become teachers, because as such you will be judged with a stricter judgment. And I hated that verse. <laughs> Still not a big fan of it, to be honest with you. And, and I realized, oh my gosh, I'm standing in front of people all the time. When I was 15, I was teaching a Sunday school class with about four to 500 high school students in it every Sunday. And I didn't know what I was talking about. But I just knew Jesus loves you. And I thought, if I'm going to teach this book, I better find out what it means. And I started studying and I started getting some commentaries. I started listening to preachers who were truth guys. And I started focusing on this truth side of things. And I started getting excited about doctrine and learning the nuance of doctrine and the difference that it really makes. I mean, it's actually really important. And I started learning this. And I started getting so excited about truth. And I realized that there's sort of a little camp of Christians that are truth people. And I got into that camp. I came over here and I got with those people. And we had Bible studies together. And we patted each other on the back for being truthful, and we looked at all those people out there and went, man, they don't know the truth. So I had been all the way over here doing grace, and then somebody said, you're supposed to be a Bible teacher, and I went all the way over here and started doing truth. And, I, and if you had the uh, you know, misfortune of being a part of Grace Fellowship in the early days of my preaching ministry here, you will remember that there was a lot of truth and not much grace and there were a whole lot of people who left crying at the end of the sermon. Not because they heard how much Jesus loved them, but because they thought, how am I ever going to measure up? And I will never forget, I, I had this conversation, there was this couple that I was reaching out to, and they'd been coming to our church for a while, and I'd become good friends with the husband, and, and after a few months, they just stopped coming, and I was actually playing golf with this guy, and I said, hey, what's up? You guys stopped coming to church. What's going on? And he goes, you want the truth? And I said, yes, I'm a truth guy. And he goes, well, the truth is that everything you say in the pulpit, we agree with. But every Sunday, we leave discouraged. And he goes, honestly, my wife, who's a young believer, she just can't handle it anymore. And they never came back to our church. And I thought, hmm, is it possible that, that I'm delivering truth, but in my heart, I'm lacking grace? And I began to seek out this concept. See, most of us, we lean too hard in one direction or the other, but Jesus was full of grace and full of truth. He never compromised one for the other. And it's a good thing, too, because our world is starving for grace. 
and starving for truth. And if we really want to be more like Jesus, we're going to need to understand more about what makes him so amazing. And I can't think of a better place to begin than to talk about Jesus and the issue of grace. Now remember, when I'm talking about grace, I'm not describing a doctrine here. I'm describing a person named Jesus. He is the epitome of grace. He is full of grace. And if you've read Proverbs, you're familiar with this proverb, no doubt, where it says, God helps those who help themselves, right? Where is that in Proverbs? What verse is that? Yeah, it's not in the Bible, guys. It came from no less a great theologian than Benjamin Franklin. Okay? You know what the Bible does teach? Not that God helps those who help themselves, which might be good wisdom. It teaches this. God is so gracious that he helps those who cannot help themselves. And, and see, when we, have, when we have watered down the message of grace to the point where we're just saying, God is your buddy who will come alongside of you and help you. If you get in trouble, you can call on God. He'll be there for you. You've seen the bumper stickers, right? God is my co-pilot. Listen, I'm not knocking your bumper stickers, but if God is your co-pilot, change seats. Because he didn't sign up to be anybody's co-pilot. And, and, and grace is bigger than that. Grace, grace is not, he helps me out because I'm not yet perfect. Grace is, I am helpless without him. If it were not for him, I would have nothing. And he pours out his grace. And grace is not just that he doesn't squash me like a bug, which quite frankly I often deserve. It's that he elevates me as his son and makes me join heir with Jesus. That's grace. And he's full of grace. One of the greatest books in my humble opinion, ever written, is a, is a French masterpiece uh, called Les Miserables, Victor Hugo. He, he wrote it, and, and it's about this thick. Uh, raise your hand, tr truth people. <laughs> raise your hand if you've read all of Les Mis. Yeah, why would you? There's movies. Katie! Did you do it, Katie? Yeah. Yeah, I... I love it. Les Mis, I love it in every form. I have the book on my iPad because it's not as thick on your iPad. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I've seen every version of the movie that I know of. I've seen all the musicals live in the theater and, at the, and the, uh, in the movies and all that kind of stuff. I'm blown away by Les Mis. And what blows me away is that it is the story of the gospel. And it's placed into a cultural setting that is different for us. And we look at it and we can see it with fresh eyes. So let me give it to you very quickly. I'm going to give you all 1,000 pages in about the next five minutes. Here's the deal. Um, there's this guy, and his name is Jean Valjean. It's at a time in which um, the, the gap between the very wealthy and the very poor in France is gigantic. And it's, it's uh, right before the sort of second French Revolution. And people are starving to death. And Valjean is starving, and his family is starving, and he steals a loaf of bread in order to feed his dying nephew who is starving to death. He gets caught, and he gets taken to prison for stealing a loaf of bread, and he serves 19 years of slave labor for stealing a loaf of bread. And 
When he is finally released from prison, he is given paperwork that he has to carry with him everywhere that says he is a dangerous criminal and a convict and that you probably shouldn't have him around and you can't get a job unless you have clean paperwork so he can't get a job and he finds himself sleeping in the street, once again hungry and now he's hungry and he is bitter and he is angry and he is broken and he is he is on the verge of exploding and he doesn't know what to do. And a priest comes along and, and wakens him while he's sleeping on the street, and takes him into the rectory where he lives. And he invites him in as a guest, and he welcomes him to his table, and he feeds him, and he gives him lodging, and he treats him with respect and kindness. And, and, and Valjean doesn't know what to do with this. And he's laying in bed at night in this place. And, and he gets up in the night, and he has a thought. And he goes into the kitchen and he opens the cabinet and he steals all of the silver that belongs to the church. And he takes it and fills a bag with it and he flees during the night. The police catch him, they beat him, they drag him back to the church where the priest is there. They throw him bleeding at the feet of the priest and they say, we found your silver and the thief who took it. And he says, this man is not a thief, I have given it to him. And then he says this, but you have forgotten the best. And he goes and gets these solid uh, silver or maybe pewter candlesticks and he brings the candlesticks and he adds it to the bag of the stolen silver. And he dismisses the police and then he looks in Valjean's face and he says basically this, I have done this for you to teach you what Jesus has done for us. And Jesus bought our life with his blood. I'm buying your allegiance to Jesus with this silver. Now, go and use this silver to become a Christ-like man. And he sends him on his way. And Valjean is so broken and so astonished by this that he does fall down and pray to Jesus and devote his life to Christ. And he becomes a follower of Christ and spends the next 1,200 pages, (laughs) dispensing grace to everyone he comes in contact with. And, And whatever, wherever he is, wherever he finds himself as he goes around and he does all these amazing things to help people, he always has with him two things, candlesticks, to remind him that the grace of God did not just help him, It transformed him. And my friends, it's a picture of what we are supposed to look like when the grace of God transforms us. Grace. It's such a powerful truth. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. That that by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves but it is the gift of God and not by works lest any man should boast. Even the faith to believe didn't come from inside me. He gave it to me as a gift. It's all grace. And guys, for the people who stand as the recipients of God's grace, how is it that we could possibly be known among others as not being gracious? God's grace is so overwhelming so astonishing, so powerful that it should transform us from the inside out. Jesus, full of grace.
Does that mean we don't speak the truth? I mean, we just toss this book out. It's so, it's so divisive, this book. I mean, this book offends people. I mean, my goodness. If we could just get rid of this book, we could do grace. Guys, this book is where we know that we're supposed to do grace. We do not compromise the truth in order to get to the grace, but that's a story for next week. For today, let me just remind you of this. The cost of our salvation is greater than we could ever, ever imagine or begin to repay. By His grace, we have been made alive in Christ and set free from our sin. That grace is in us to be given to anyone who needs it. The beauty of grace is no matter how much you give away, you never lose it. God has made us recipients of grace that we might be givers of grace. The world's attracted to him because that's what he's like. Let's stand and pray together.